Welcome to Once Upon an Upset, a podcast of stories and conversations to help make sense of difficult times. I'm your host, Jessica Laurel Kane. For this week's episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, a clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Stephen has written 46 books and nearly 650 scientific articles and originated Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT, a popular evidence-based form of psychotherapy that uses mindfulness, acceptance, and values-based methods. What makes him particularly inspiring to me personally is that he himself has a history of panic disorder and has personally used his own methods for understanding and reframing these behaviors. His work is shown to make an enormous difference to people from all walks of life, whether they're suffering from depression or OCD behavior, or for people who want to boost their performance and well-being in their life. In my conversation with him, Stephen gives a brief summary of the principles of his work, and then we speak of topics including parenting a child with anxiety or OCD behavior, and also some ideas for how to strengthen one's values and habits, even when destructive thoughts are present. I'm definitely a writer more than an interviewer, but I hope you'll enjoy the conversation and carry away something valuable to use in the moments of your life. Welcome. Stephen Hayes, I'm very excited that you're here. Thank you so very much. I thought it would be useful for our listeners, many of whom are parents who have kids who are um, dealing with anxiety issues, um, OCD behavior, and things like that. And, And I was wondering if you would be able to just briefly go over the six principles and explain what your system is called and how that might be able to help parents um, center themselves while in the presence of their kids who are struggling. Yeah, happy to do that. I mean, let me uh, give kind of an overview, a sort of a 35,000 foot view of it, and then we can dive into the individual elements. Because while there's six things there, you can distill them down to three, and from there you can easily go to one. Uh, Very much the same way that if you had a box uh, made of six squares, you know, put together and connected properly, you can make a strong box from that, but it requires the six sides. If you viewed any one side independent of the others, it wouldn't be a box, it'd just be a square. And it's not going to be able to do what a box can do. can't hold things, move things, carry things around, but a a box can. And in the same way, these are six skills that work together. And for reasons that I think we can get into. But the uh, sort of elevator version of the six is that uh, life is asking you to learn something about how to deal with your own psychology in a way that allows you to live the kind of life that you want. And it's asking those questions in six areas. How do you deal with emotions and sensations? How do you deal with thoughts? What about attention? Who are you? What's your sense of self? What do you care about? 
what kind of habits are you building? Those six are the most important. And uh, in the model that's underneath the acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training when it's used outside of therapy, the ACT, we say ACT, but we don't say ACT. It sounds to me like ECT or shock therapy. I don't like that connotation. So <laughs> ACT is a very good name. Um has a model underneath it of psychological flexibility, which has these six aspects. And, uh, you know, life is asking you to learn them. And that means to be able to be open to your own emotions, bodily sensations, memories, your own experiences, to be able to see them without entanglement, uh, to not run from them, to not cling to them, to be able to use them and learn from them, but to not be dictated to by them. You know, the echoes of the past into the present, we often call emotions. We feel something based on the situation we're in, but also the history that we had. And we want to do that because that's how we learn. We want to be able to sense that there may be danger or that there may be opportunity or that this is a time to up our game or this is a time where we could relax. Emotions carry that information and to receive it, we have to be open to it, not dominated by it. Uh, the same thing happens with thoughts, which is a little more tricky because thoughts you disappear into very, very easily. You can kind of see it. If you watch your own mind, you'll, you can enter into a thought, into a daydream that just carries you away. All of us have had the experience of driving and a thought shows up. And next thing you know, it's we're three or four miles down the road and we haven't even been noticing how we got there. <laughs> you can just disappear into your head, metaphorically. And so... You need to have the skill to be able to step back from your thoughts just enough to see the process of thinking so that you can think in an open, flexible way without having to do what your thoughts say to do or silence the voices within. It's really voices, plural, because we have multiple thoughts about almost anything. Every single person we interact with, you know, when years from now, we can kind of remember what how they thought, how they spoke, etc. You've got your mom and dad inside you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even in a voice that you can recognize is that, well, that's mom or dad's voice. They used to say that. And that's not always nice things like those criticisms <laughs> that mom did that hurt your feelings are probably rumbling around or show up inside you at some moment. Good, bad, and indifferent. But to be able to make use of that without being entangled, dictated to, dominated by those voices, you have to be able to hear them kind of the way you would hear kids in the backseat of a car. You know, if they're getting into it, you might want to just kind of let your attention go somewhere else. Uh, and so being able to step back from your thoughts uh, and then to hear them, uh, to receive the kind of information that's inside of it without entanglement, clinging, or having to do what they say. Mm -hmm. Those are the flexibility skills that are involved with being open. Then there's two skills that are involved with being present, being able to attend to what's important in a flexible, fluid, and voluntary way, to be able to shift your attention if what you're focused on is not important, to move your attention to something important and keep it there despite distractions, to be able to broaden your attention so you can keep track of multiple things, or narrow your attention so you can focus on one thing. So that broad and narrow shift or stay 
with attention uh, is, is critical. And, you know, when the mind starts giving you scary thoughts or so forth, there's a tendency for everything else to leave the room and your eyes to focus on that mentally, uh, not literally. But um, that may not be the thing to do. You may know full well there's nothing new to learn there. Um, you probably have noticed this when you're sleeping. Some of the folks tell us that you can go to sleep if you can quiet the mind for only about a minute. But if you've ever had insomnia, you know that that minute is sometimes really hard to acquire <laughs> because the chatterboxes between your ears is just going and going. And man, you're listening and you're comparing and you're engaging in the conversation and you're arguing back and you're saying that's not true and you're wishing it would go away, et cetera, et cetera. And as soon as you do that, you're uh, deep into the thicket of thought. Being able to step back just enough to be able to allocate your attention in a flexible, fluid, and voluntary way comes from those openness skills. And then who's attending? Who is this conscious human being? Who is Jessica? And there's multiple answers to that. You know, you may have a gender, you may have an age, you may have a role in life. You know, I'm doing, I'm a podcaster. Uh, I'm a guest on a podcast show. Yeah, but you're also just a conscious human being who's connected in consciousness to others. And that journey as just being, just being here began when mom and dad's eyes met yours as a neonate and you dumped mm -hmm. endorphins in your brain because you felt seen by kind eyes. And so part of us needs to attach to this more spiritual or just noticing and witnessing and observing sense of self that doesn't have a big stake in whether you're up, down, or sideways, you know, whether or not you're thought well of or have done something that you feel guilty about, et cetera. There's just another part of you that is here. It's in the now and it's aware and includes in consciousness all these other things. So those two are the being centered processes of being here in the present as this kind of more spiritual being that you are. Mm -hmm. And then the, those four together, not a bad def definition of mindfulness or, uh, you know, kind of being, mm -hmm. but then there's also the issue of doing. And so the final two processes are, are what are the things that you want to put into your life in terms of their qualities the things that you do or the ways that you are, the sort of issues of being and doing, what are the qualities that you want to have? Uh, they're the kind of adverbs, you know, like lovingly, genuinely, honestly, creatively, uh, playfully, compassionately. You know, we, we do things that have qualities. Well, what do you want the qualities of what you do? To reflect what qualities, you know, and you'll find that either... In the places where you're hurt, you flip it over, you'll find what you care about. In the places where you're lifted up and vital, unpack it, you'll find what you care about. The heroes that you have, the guides that you want, the people you look up to, slow it down, look at their lives and what they stand for in your mind, and you'll find what you care about. And you can find it also in your sense of authorship over your own story, that yearning to be able to write your life story in your way.
not mm-hmm. the details. You don't know. I mean, that plane might fly <laughs> window in both of our places here over the next few minutes. We don't know, but we can write whether or not we're writing a hero's journey or a tragedy. We can make choices about the storyline itself. And so if you want a word for those four things, there are ways of finding out what your values are. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the qualities of being and doing you want to put in your life? And then the final one is how do you create habits around that? They get broader, more flexible, more, more frequent that encompass more and more of your actions so that even when you're mindless, even when you're not noticing, even when you zone out, uh, you're still moving in a values-based direction. You're still living the kind of life and being the kind of person that you want to live and be. And those are the engagement processes. So I've given you six in in chunks of three. It'd be learning how to be open, aware, and actively engaged. If you want a single word for it, I would say learning how to be psychologically flexible. If you wanted a common sense word, I'd say maybe (laughs) how to put love in your life. And if you wanted it down to a single letter, I'd be learning how to be. So there we go. That's the psychological flexibility model. And it's sitting on top of about 5,000 studies. Or if you look across the whole literature, this makes a difference. I think it's, it's wonderful. And I love, I love that it goes behind the scenes of, of the mind um, to, you know, not just tools to, um, well, what I should say, what I was meaning to say before I lost my thought is about about outlets for finding um, ways to take those values and, and be in action with them in one's life. Because I've noticed that uh, in, in a lot of people's lifestyles, there aren't a lot of outlets for kids or even parents to have what they value in and actually be able to put it into something like a purpose, like a specific purpose. And it reminds me of this time where I had this dog and um, he was in Brooklyn and, and he was trying to bury a bone in the wood floor. And he kept trying so hard and he was bloodying his little snout trying to get this bone into the wood floor. And it just always stuck with me. Like he's got the purpose, he's got the values, he's gonna get this bone in the, but there wasn't the right outlet for him to do that. And and it kind of reminds me of some of my son's rituals or some of the rituals I used to have. Do you find in your opinion, do you have thoughts about about our society's lack of of outlets for people to uh, express their values inside of. We have got schools and jobs and all that, but maybe that's not what lights people up. Yeah, I think it's important and a good insight that you are pointing towards because sometimes I think we create structures that are meant to be helpful to our children, to others, to ourselves, but they end up kind of dominating over the processes that are important. School is a good example because while you want to learn and you want to do well and you want to have skills and knowledge that you can use going forward and you want to have careers and jobs and a place that in the community that contributes to others and brings in enough resources that you'll be able to live a successful life and have a family world, et cetera, et cetera. You do all that. Yeah, but don't forget that, you know, 
the world of work and of uh, achievement and of uh, contribution and so forth contains within it at our best uh, a chunk of who and how we want to be in our life. There, there's a values issue there. And in the name of performance, we can easily become the helicopter parents, let's say, who just make sure that the outcome is positive without really focusing on how can I establish processes of learning and doing that will be there when I'm gone and my child will have internalized it. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I think most of us, if we slow down and look, we'll see that self-acceptance is a really, really important thing. That while you can use shame and blame yourself, uh, you know, well, you can wag a finger at yourself and try to force behavior out. Even when it works, it kind of doesn't because you end up feeling badly about yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't feel lifted up and vitalized by it. You feel like you uh, avoided the disaster or, you know, tricked somebody else into thinking well of you or of applauding, but deep down you don't really feel good about yourself, etc. Well, that's a journey that uh, is kind of a first you lose and then you play journey. No matter how you do it, you end up losing. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to put ourselves or children in that place. So I think really thinking about what are our values and how can we support a values-based life journey in those we love is uh, an important extension of what I was saying. And we know that psychologically flexible parents tend to produce psychologically flexible children. And we know that if you follow people over long periods of time, we have really good trials with three, four, 5,000 people followed in great detail over a decade. You know, that psychological flexibility skills, the what, six that I just mentioned, predicts a life trajectory that's gonna be positive. And if you flip it and you're unflexible and you don't have those strong sides of six sides of a box, you know, you aren't able to do what you need to do. So let's keep our eye on it with our kids. Absolutely. I'm not trying to guilt trip any parent by saying that, you know, I have kids that range in age from 16 to 52 and I'm going to set the Guinness book world record. <laughs> little Stevie goes to school. I will have had children in the home for 55 straight years, depending on my wallet. I love that. That's I do. It takes multiple wives to do this, but still I get the record and, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not easy. Being a good parent is not easy. Um, so I'm not saying this from a position of arrogance, but, but one of compassionate concern that if you really want to support your kids, work on yourself and your own psychological flexibility skills because they're watching and they will learn from you. They're going to learn from watching, not from being told. Absolutely. Sometimes the other day I was thinking that I think, at least in my case, I think my son has my issues, but without the pretending that they're not there. So, <laughs> so I see him um, engaging in his behavior. So I'm, I'm having to understand and be flexible and um, supportive for him and reparenting my own self at the same time. And sure. that can be really, depending on my level of flexibility with myself, it can be either very entertaining or triggering. <laughs> right. But 
Yeah. yeah, I think actually OCD, I know you focused on that and the work that you do um, to degree. And, you know, my mother was clinically OCD to the point of, you know, having her hands bleed from washing her hands and things like that. And uh, I've had some struggles with it myself. Uh, historically, I've learned how to kind of take that part of me and kindly poke it in the eye you know if, if i'm having thoughts about how contaminated that bathroom was my fingers are going to go right in my mouth so it's sort of like okay mind if you're going to harass me about this here's what you get and uh, i find that it just doesn't give you fertile ground to grow uh, obsessive uh, thoughts and and rituals and so forth but i've seen in myself to a degree but uh, historically but especially in my family uh, uh, of origin how dominant uh, it can become that voice within that demands uh, that you do something to avoid the doom or to somehow control and you know we're ocd folks aren't like aliens from a foreign planet i mean every child goes through a phase where it's, you know, step on a crack and it'll break grandmother's back, etc. When the ma magic of words shows up, every child goes through the, their own little version of uh, dipping into the OCD well and um, learning how to have thoughts without having to dance to the tune that they call is a great benefit in life and OCD can help you learn that. Yeah. Well, I like the correlation between the values and self-leadership to being able to um, kind of unravel the OCD from a different perspective to see how it might be a coping mechanism without leadership that's trying to preserve the self, wash, 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 or check, check, check. But without that value part of, of, of your system or other systems, you don't have that self-leadership to contextualize where the messages are coming and then to elect yourself the president of mm -hmm. messages. <laughs> so that's why I'm so interested in, in what, what you talk about, about, about acceptance and going towards and, and unraveling and not having it be a voice that's out to get somebody, but a misunderstood self-preservation that, that might give insight into what the real um, intention is underneath that, which might be something noble. With oh, absolutely. No, I like the way you're talking, and I like the metaphors that you're using because they uh, you know, give us just enough distance to be able to step back and say, what am I really up to here, and what is this about? And make some choices because, uh, you know, we're not trying to screw up our lives. We're not trying to, you know, spin in circles. Um, and yet there's that kind of uh, uh, feeling that you're just uh, really close to a place where you could uh, uh, be found to be wanting uh, or to be highly criticized or, or have something horrible happen because of you. Uh, to be responsible for something awful or whatever the particular mm -hmm. form it might take. Um, you can have to feel that vulnerability. Uh, I, I was listening to uh, some interview you did, and I loved how you 
you reframed something terrible. I think it was like throwing, having a baby, like at the top of a, a hotel or something. Oh, and yeah. how you were able to just in your sentencing, you you took the shame away because that shame is such a powerful element. And then you could just see the the nuts and bolts of the situation and it took the the power away from it. I was wondering if you could share, you know, something maybe that's a little taboo that that without the shame you recognize that that's that's not something that's going to happen. It, I don't remember exactly how you said it. Yeah, but. <laughs> I don't remember exactly how I said it, but I remember the moment really, really well. I was in a Brazilian forest at a conference, and my uh, now a 38-year-old was crawling <laughs> out on the floor. And uh, it was such a warm and beautiful part of Brazil that uh, there was no windows. It, it, it had little um things you opened up sort of like little uh wood panels that came up and we're at the top of this tower and we're above the tops of these huge trees in the middle of the forest uh and a, a, a kind of recreational area called Agua Lindoya, a beautiful uh, brazilian mountain area and uh the impulse to grab Charlie and to see how far I can fling him over the top of the forest tree is like a frisbee was so powerful. I was literally sitting on my hands and <laughs> sweating bullets almost you know, like I'm going to do it. Um, and horrified by the image, but yet so somehow attracted to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think being able to sort of step back and, and, to notice that and to, to notice the ebb and flow of it and the power of it, you know, like it's a reflection of things like what would happen if I lost my son? That mm -hmm. would be horrible. And feeling, you know, a lot of love for this baby, but also how much of a burden it is to sort of <laughs> have a baby. That's also true. That's part of the experience too. And, the, that vulnerability that comes with love and loss that can turn into obsession, like a, the the fear of loss or the 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 uh, what if, then mm -hmm. giving you an answer. Well, what if you did this horrible thing? What if you murdered essentially uh, your uh, your crawling baby in some sort of you know lunatic act like that? Right. But my, my favorite thing is the conversation about it, because I have a funny feeling that people make their relationship to their thoughts. They put a huge brick wall up because of the, the tendency to be so rigid in conversations. If someone says something like that, then all of a sudden, whoa, you know, I don't have that. Um, and then people's shame um, creates this isolation, and then the isolation creates more um, avoidance, and more avoidance maybe creates more coping mechanisms that aren't healthy, and, and pretty soon there's a huge mess, and a person without self-leadership, and without having a conversation to, to discover what the values are, that would then be the anchor to then say, well, that's, of course, I can juggle multiple things. I can juggle that my child sometimes a nuisance and wow, look at him go. But yet, my values are as obviously a, a parent who cares about my child's future. 
like to be able to juggle all that. I wish there were more, I think a sense of humor and conversation would, would, would be such a wonderful um, intro to people being able to have these conversations more often. Yeah, I think we're getting better. I do think we're talking about these things more openly and with enough perspective or point of view that it's not, you know, talking about them as a matter of increasing our unhealthy focus on them and so forth, but as a matter of making room for the complexity of human thought and of human emotion. It's hard to be human. I mean, we're, we're trying to do something pretty difficult of being able to learn how to just be and to care about things on one hand, on the other hand, having this evaluative problem solving judgmental voice within that's great for doing your taxes, but you know, will deny you easily peace of mind if you don't know how to manage it. And uh, you know, that we wouldn't want to lose that voice. We need our, you know, rational problem solving evaluative judgmental sides, but uh, we also need the, peace of mind that can come that the whole of us is okay it's okay to be yourself and to be human um i i think we're making some progress culturally in some areas at least perhaps your podcast is an example and there are places where people can go where people can talk about these kinds of things in healthy and flexible ways and um, where people can share stories and so forth that talk about things that normally you might be worried that you would be seen as the crazy one or the odd one or the strange one or the whatever. Yes. But, uh, you know, I have found what your mind tells you is that if you were to put your insides out, you'd be rejected and thrown out of the group. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you do it responsibly, you're not dumping it on other people and saying, save me, save me, but you're sharing with other people of what your internal processes are like and how you're stepping up to living a kind of life worth living, even with them, people come to you and they start sharing their stories. And it, you know, if you're struggling with OCD and you're sharing some of that, other people will share that, but they must share other things too about the struggles they've had with uh, substances or, or addiction or abuse or trauma or, you know, because that's part of the, human picture. I mean, is there anybody that you know really, really, really well who doesn't have major areas of suffering that fit in these kinds of domains? Only the ones who are causing the suffering. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, and you know, sometimes they're, uh, there's a backstory to that too, and, and you kind of, sometimes I feel even more uh, that they often are struggling yeah, putting it putting it out in a way that is harmful for others. So, uh, yeah, well, I mean, see it all in context. Of compassionate for it. This OCD piece uh, has changed a lot of my own thinking with regard to my mother, because I've found out just in the last few years, by through twenty three and Me, discovering that I had a. Uh, my mother's mother's sister's son was just not very far away uh, from me. And, um, and in walking through the family stories, discovering that 
My mother's mother asked my mother to quit college and come back and care for her in a TB sanitarium when there really wasn't anything she could do except occasionally visit. They weren't allowed to actually go in and the people in the sanitarium weren't allowed to leave. Um, you know, talking about wearing masks. I mean, mm -hmm. you go back to some of the things that happen medically with things like TB and so forth, you would you lose your freedom. You're essentially be put in prison. Yeah. Uh, because they didn't... Uh, they were trying to control the disease, but um, my mother declined her mother's request. And uh, I found out just a couple of years ago from my uh, cousin, basically once removed that um, my grandmother probably uh, killed herself as a result. Oh my goodness. And so, you know, I see my mother and her bleeding hands in a totally different way. That's and I, I actually weep at the thought of it. Yes. And think about what a burden that would be to go through life feeling as though somehow you were the cause of your mother's death. Yes. And, uh, and not feel as though you could talk about it to anybody, except maybe my dad. My guess is my dad knew this story. I, hope. I, I can see a few things and things he said and did then in hindsight, because I had a little bit of a suspicion, a little bit of a suspicion. There was something in the, the darkness of the secrets in my family. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we all carry places that we can feel ashamed about. All of us. And guilt, it turns out, is actually something you want. Guilt mostly is just, okay, I've done something that I don't want to do again. That's wrong. That actually is an emotion. Shame has that other piece of, and you're bad. Mm -hmm. Boy, you drink that Kool-Aid and you're, yeah. you're really in some hot water. I don't know what the metaphor might be, but you've really done something that is very close to like cutting out yourself off of the knees and then trying to run or race. It's just so <laughs> absolutely painful to try to outrun shame. That's what happened to my mother. Um, my mother came from a very, very rigid upbringing where her mother was very concerned. She was very damned up in terms of not wanting to let anything out. And my mother was wild and, and was her own person. Um, but she was filled with so much shame. And I think it, as she, I, I lost her five years ago, but as she um, tried to cope with her coping mechanism, she would shoplift and do all sorts of things. And I really believe that it was her creativity along with shame that developed into, well, she probably had the predisposition to have um, voices in her head and paranoia but she wound up believing that there was a government planted a chip in her head and that they were monitoring all of her bad behavior. And she really, she was brilliant and hilariously funny as well, but she had this rigid side to her that ended in psychosis and, and binge drinking to avoid those voices. And I really do feel like if she'd had some of that flexibility to go towards some of that stuff she was feeling ashamed about, that she could have started unraveling some of that stuff. But my heart breaks too. Similarly, like 
you were talking about just to think about all that that anguish she put herself through um we we you know shame is a such is a toxic emotion because yeah. it isn't just an emotion it's an emotion and an evaluation and when you fuse with and act speak or just when you buy into or become entangled with the way we'd normally talk about it if you become buy into and become entangled with that self-judgment that there's something really fundamentally evil wrong loathsome about you um boy the toxicity of that just to yourself as a whole organism as a psychological being as a physical being i mean it actually predicts things like dying earlier mm -hmm. or having a greater likelihood of developing uh, chronic diseases and so forth it's so harsh on your system like you are mobilized the metaphor i've used is like pushing an accelerator down the car and then pushing down the brake at the same time that you're just revved up to do something and there's nothing to do because anywhere you go there you go and you're the evil one the bad doer the one who did the horrible thing yeah. it's yeah. not by accident forgiveness rituals and so forth is part of all of our spiritual traditions mm -hmm. but we can do something like that also just with our psychological work i mean i'm, I'm down with our spiritual and religious traditions as a way but there's other ways too and if you kind of dig into what that word means of forgiveness. It means giving yourself what went before. It's kind of wiping the slate clean enough that you can have a fresh start. And um, we did, uh, we, the, you know, the ACT community and researchers did the first big randomized trial on shame uh, ever done actually. And using acceptance and commitment therapy and with people who are in, uh, who had severe drug use problems and were in a inpatient facility in Nevada. And you don't get into inpatient facility for drugs in Nevada unless you have really trashed your life because this is a cowboy conservative state and we don't like spending money on anything like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, for a long time, our mental health program was buy a bus ticket and ship bus ticket and ship them to Sacramento. Literally. That's mm -hmm. what we people read who had psychosis, for example, right. we put us to California. <laughs> and when we were caught, we had to pay. We, the state, you know, the taxpayers, you know, tens of millions of dollars because that was unfair to California. But it's kind of an indication about how far away of compassionate care that a, a government agency can go. But yeah, um, in that trial, what happened when we taught people to open up to their shame to let go of the self-judgment in a healthy way, to learn how to step back from judgmental thoughts and watch them, to make some values choices and to start building your um, life journey around a more spiritual sense of self that's able to make choices like that and build healthy habits of, that are values-based. What happened is that compared to our treatment as usual, which was a 12-step program, shame came down more slowly but it kept going down. And what happened in usual care is shame was pushed down quickly and it rebounded and went right back to where it was. And so learning how to let go of shame is a process. It takes time. You can't just flip a, a light switch and it requires a kind of self-kindness or self-compassion 
that allows you to face the hell of your own history, to go eye to eye with that voice within that is telling you that you're no good, and to find this more uh, self-compassionate place in which you can carry your history of self-judgments without being uh, entangled with them or running from them or, or, or clinging to the opposite in hopes that they never show up. Um, but it's difficult. And what we actually found that shame reduction, but not too much. What we wanted was a healthy reduction of shame, not this suppressive, you know, Stuart Smalley, you know, gosh darn it, people like me uh, mm -hmm. way of, uh, if you remember Saturday Night Live from years ago. Um, uh, yeah, that that's a healthy thing. And uh, you can apply that not just to drug but uh, problems, but you can try it. OCD or depression or uh, domestic violence or PTSD or, you know, anything that's in the hell of your own history. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that the, um, the people who in your history who have been, who've had a lot of healing from shame um, or whatever is is giving them that paralysis in in their minds. Is it is it usually connected to making new choices and seeing new results based on that part that action again that action based on the new values? I mean, is that just an instrumental part of healing? Is to see your new self being in action in the world. I, I think so. If, if the rubber doesn't meet the road with values-based action and habits built around them, uh, you've only done half the job. I mean, this kind of more, you might say, mindful or open or self-compassionate space that can come from emotional cognitive openness and sort of attentional flexibility from this more spiritual sense of self, they're means to an end. And what is the end? The end isn't a, a blue ribbon at the end of your life. The end is being able to take steps in a direction that you choose in your life. It, it's being able to be on a journey that resonates with you deeply, that lifts you up and carries you forward as this is vital, this is important, this is me, this is what I want to do. And so if you're able to with all of that chatter inside and your past history and betrayals and emotions and bodily sensations and all of that, take that loving step, that genuine step, that honest chat, that, that creative, whatever this thing is that you want to do. I mean, your values are up to you. I don't, I'm not going to make a list on what they should be. They, they should be what you hold dear not as a goal or an outcome, not as something you can put in a box and say, I've got it, but as a quality of the steps you take. They're more like a direction in a journey than they are like sitting finished at a destination. Mm -hmm. And so values unfold. You know, if, if you make the choice to uh, act lovingly, and most values you can turn into adverbs. It's one of the easy ways to distinguish a goal which can just be a noun, you know, I want a million dollars. What for? Well, I'll feel better about myself. Uh, well, let me show you the literature that says the more you do that journey, the worse you will feel about yourself. 
That's not where feeling good about yourself comes from. You can't do, get it from your bank account. You'll get a pop and a rush if you get lots of numbers there, but it's not going to do anything for you. You actually feel mocked by it. You'll feel as though people like you for your money, for example. So be careful to focus on what's important. And I think you're right, Jessica. I really think uh, if it doesn't show up in the world of behavior linked to something that is undeniably so for you that this is of importance as a quality of that behavior, um, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Uh, that's That side of the box has to be strong. Yes, yes. Well, I thought about this because I noticed, um, you know, especially the last couple of years in the pandemic, there haven't been a lot of outlets for a lot of people to have their values materialize in the world as something they can hold and see and connect with. And, you know, it just so happens, you know, my son, and when his mind is so associative and so smart and so right and goes on a million miles an hour and he wants to have these dynamic problem-solving sessions and when he doesn't have that outlet, he reminds me of that story I told you about my dog you know, flooding his stuff in the wood floor. However, when he's playing Minecraft with his friends, then suddenly he has no need for his rituals because he his synapses, everything is being engaged and he's connected and he's problem solving and he's in a tribe. And, you know, a lot of parents, you know, are annoyed that their kids are on Minecraft all the time. But I can see it's almost like it reminds me of like the only way to, to use that primitive energy that we all have from the days where we really did have to survive and thrive. It's like the only um, option for some kids like this world of Minecraft so that's what made me think about it he's got that purpose and it really made me think of the correlation between that purpose and what you talk about with purpose and 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 how that helps my son yeah I think it, um, it, it you're making some good observations here and um we do need to be more uh, flexible, I think, about how we get that those kinds of connections into our life. In the age of COVID and uh, young people and so forth uh, have gone through a year where suddenly they're not with their friends necessarily. And there's all the things that we've had to face with quarantines and, and all the rest of that. And um, I have a a son who really, really, really likes Minecraft as well <laughs> or, or things that are similar to it and will happily play for a long time. I predict that that fear that we sometimes have as parents, you know, that, oh, God, they're on the Internet all the time and so on. I think you're already starting to see the studies coming out. So actually, you know, doesn't have that same thing, especially in this COVID era era because of so many things that can come along with it mm -hmm. uh, that are, that are uh, you know, positive. The, um, uh, and, and where there's not very many other outlets for it. The ritual part of, of learning, you know, how to let go of that is going to, 
you know, part of what's going on, I think, with like OCD and anxiety disorders, so-called, uh, is that, you know, there's a family there of uh, substance use, depression, anxiety that kind of hang out together. Uh, I, I have the full deal, actually, in my family history, you know, from alcoholism to depression to OCD to panic disorder. So I come by mine, honestly. But... Um, <laughs> What does appear to be the case is that there's a genetic ease of associating negative, relating negative things over a longer period of time. It's just easier. The kind of families that lead to family histories like this isn't just a, you know, like, boy, do you have a neurotic family. No, it isn't like that. It's more like probably even genetically. Uh, some families, some individuals more readily will be challenged by uh, negative emotions over longer periods of time. Hmm. And that's not a bad thing. For one thing, it puts in the group some people who are worried about things. That's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, if you go watch a troop of uh, chimpanzees, you're probably going to see at least one of them be the watch out one that's kind of often worried about things and they give the early hoots for when a snake comes or the you know they run when the you know the gorillas show up that might uh, uh, harm them or the baboons that might eat them and um as part of the whole community you know you want some of that but those of us who have families where that's an easy thing, and how would you know that? Well, if your parents, grandparents, etc., have lots of anxiety, depression, substance abuse in it, tag, you've got that ability. So what? So what? Well, you better work on learning how to deal with echoes, negative echoes of your past that show up in the present in ways that are not avoidant or clinging. I love what you just said, though. I mean, that's just such a beautiful way to reframe, like in the context of 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 someone who's a checker, for instance. Like, I've got to check this to appoint that person as having a particular job in the family. Like, make sure, like, your job is to make sure all the fire alarms have their batteries checked. You know, if someone if someone has that predisposition to be the tribal checker, for instance, maybe in this day and age, they just need a, a job, like something that's tempered and specific. I don't know. It seems like such a good way to reframe things as self-leadership instead of, of that uh, urge without direction or purpose. I think once you've learned how to manage it in a way that you get to be the kind of person you want to be with the kind of trajectory in your life and the sense of doing a values-based journey that you want, you can take the deficits, so-called, that you have and look around and say, you know, by golly, this would be really, really good in some <laughs> contexts. Not in exactly that form, but in ways that link to it. So, for example, I mean, I've had uh, tax accountants who have had histories of OCD and have been able to sort of really manage that well, who are magnificent because they don't, they, they're not sloppy. They do 
look at that column of numbers with a careful eye. And I need them to do that. Mm -hmm. I need, want them to do that because I want these numbers to be right. I don't want them going back and checking it 10 times before it goes out the door because I need to get it out the door and they need to earn their money by being able to behave in a way that's efficient and effective for others. So this isn't by, by way of saying, oh, well, I'm screwed by a mental health problem, so I'm going to find a way to benefit from it. No, you, if you look inside your own emotional life, cognitive life, your urges, predispositions, what's natural to you. You know, we have put loose in the world a way of thinking about human beings over the last 150 years that is false. And what we put in the world is based on bell curves and standard deviations and all the rest is that there's this central one called normal. If you're at the tips of the distribution, you're abnormal. It can be gifted and talented, or it could be in the developmentally disabled class. It could be, etc. That is not the way to think about human beings. Why? Because our skills, abilities, aspirations, etc., are so varied. And if you take something like intelligence, intelligence has seven or eight or nine, ten different features to it. And people can be really strong in one area and really weak in another area. Have you ever really looked carefully at achievement tests? I mean, yeah, there's some who are like acing everything, but a more common thing is there's some areas you're not good at, some areas you're good at. Well, what if you turned your strengths into a real strength? And, you know, there are some companies that are doing pretty well doing that. You know, um, uh, if you take a company like Tesla, fastest growing company in the, in the world, a major company uh, right now over the last year, you know, growing at 80, 90% of uh, gross uh, income over the last two years. The way Tesla hires their experts, they have 70,000 employees and uh, you know, a large number of AI engineers, experts, and so forth, is they don't go to Harvard, they don't go to Yale, they don't say, who came from the, they dial into the kinds of skills they need for something. And they look at who's really got those skills, regardless of, uh, not regardless completely, but without necessarily saying it's like, oh, you're smart or yeah, that's so clunky and chunky. Yeah. If you're, if you take a careful eye at what your interests are, your skills are, your aspirations, if I can use one that's personal, uh, I've sometimes thought I'm somewhere on the spectrum. You know, when I get into something, I just freaking disappear into it. And I told my loving wife when we were dating, love, I will go away. You will see me go away repeatedly. But here's the deal. I will always come back. <laughs> and you can trust me to to protect our relationship. I love you. I won't betray you, but I will space out, disappear, etc. It's just going to happen because that's the kind of way that I am. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, when I look at the areas where I've been successful in my life, they've been in areas where that is an asset and the areas where it's harder for me or areas where that's not an asset. And so I'm working on both. I don't want to just say, okay, I just want to do what I'm good at. No, I, but I'm willing. And I, I would encourage people really to think about this seriously of yes, 
you know, rein in the OCD enough that you have a choice about what you're doing, etc. And no, uh, don't feel as though you are now the abnormal one and that your goal in life is to be normal. Your goal in life is to be you. And some of these things that look like they're deficits may actually be assets. Would you allow yourself to be yourself in a way that you can build your life around what really works for you? So, uh, That's very beautiful. And, and, it, and it all goes back to the flexibility piece because you have to be flexible to be able to see your assets and then communicate about them. That's super true. And, uh, you know, the flexibility piece that I just walked through of these six, uh, we've just finished a study where we looked at every randomized trial that's a controlled study of any psychological invention, intervention of any kind for any psychological outcome of any kind in the history of the world that identified using statistically appropriate procedures, a, a thing called mediational analysis, that identified what was the functionally important pathway to change. And it took us two and a half years. We looked at 55,000 studies. We had to have two people look at every single one of them. We had, you know, it was a massive project. Oh, and we're writing up the first article right now. It's an invited article. It'll, I hope to have it finished this month. And it'll be out this year. But here's what we have found is that the six processes I just named expanded a little bit and made socially connected. Let me give you an example. If you're more open and accepting of your own emotions... When you socially extend that, that means being more open and accepting of other people's emotions. There's a name for that. It's called compassion. And so taking self-acceptance to a compassionate mind towards others. If you can step back and watch your own thoughts, we call it a diffusion. And if you can do that in a way that allows you to think in a creative way, when you socially extend that, it means really being able to engage people in genuine conversations about their thoughts and to be able to listen to them in a way that's not avoidant or clinging, but we can have a, a real conversation. So if we add that, the social extension, the six things I mentioned, uh, something like 85% of everything we know about how to go from where you are now towards a life that's more meaningful, prosperous, and uh, free of uh, the cul-de-sacs that we call mental and behavioral disorders. Uh, virtually every single thing from stepping up to the challenges of physical disease to dealing with anxiety to having relationships to work, being rub, run your job well, and I'm thinking about what's going to start tomorrow to be able to win a gold medal at the Olympics. I mean, literally that broad. Mm -hmm. Everything is fostered by it. So it's not an unlearnable set. You have a, a life in which part of your job is to you yourself, between you and the person in the mirror, learn how to be a more emotionally, cognitively flexible, more attentional and flexible from this more spiritual noticing sense of self and build the habits around your values. If you can do that, you know, you're living the hero's journey. 
the the reason why we have those stories about the hero, the stories, you know, you notice the the, the heroes always have flaws. Have you noticed? Mm -hmm. Great stories, the heroes always have flaws. They're not perfect. Nobody would read a story like, I'm expert at everything. I had a challenge, I solved it. And I had another challenge, I solved it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Nobody would read that story. You wouldn't identify with it. No, you read the story where you know Luke Skywalker is freaking out on a, a farm in the middle of a desert on a planet, and a droid shows up and says, "Tag, you're it." And you go, "What? Me? <laughs> I don't. I can't do that." Or you know, the ring falls into you know uh, from uh, into in, in, into the hand of uh, you know uh, Samwise and. Uh, I'm blocking on the name of the hero in Lord of the Rings, but um, and, and we have to. I have to do what? I'm going to throw this in the crack of doom. I have to go into that scary place. You know, all of these stories start with the humble person who doesn't feel adequate being asked to do something and facing cognitive and emotional challenges that are really hard. I'm not able to it. I'm not good enough, and being able to connect with their values, usually with help of others, the Gandalfs of the world or Samwise or whatever, to come into that present moment, okay, here I am, and with those values intact to face those challenges and overcome them. And when it's all finished, you go back to being normal and you're, uh, you know, sending your son off to Hogwarts on the, on the <laughs> Always have that structure. Now, why do we like stories like that? Because that's the life we're living. Yeah. Right now, you're the hero in your own story. Well, that's you're a... adequate to it. And you have challenges. And you're going to need help from your mates. And you need to find your values and come into that present and take the steps needed. And if the, if the hero's journey for you is the hero's journey of what do I do with OCD, that's not a horrible burden. It's an opportunity. For you, given your history, your biology, your family history, I just told you some of mine. I mean, I came by my anxiety disorder, honestly, excuse me. I mean, my mom and dad were both anxiety disorder people and modeled inflexibility massively, alcoholism and chronic depression and OCD. I mean, that was my models. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to be the victim you don't have to write the tragedy you just said something so interesting though if you don't mind me jumping in um about the hero's journey and for those of us so many of us come from these lost people who are beautiful incredible people but who had lost their hero's journey or not lost the journey but sure. their, their space is being that for themselves so I feel like there's so many of us looking for characters out there as the hero, but maybe that's also part of that healing process is to really see ourselves as the hero in the journey. And so many of us come from, well, who do you think you are? Unless you have A, B, and C um, uh, validation from this, this, and this, then you are not even welcome into the try to be the hero of your life club because you're nobody. And I feel like being in a, in a space where people can see 
themselves beyond those structures, those rigid structures of our society and be able to really step into that hero's journey. I could imagine that healing would be such a more of an adventure. Yeah, I think if you can do it, it's do it in a way that's not prideful. It's, we're not encouraging narcissism here. We're, what we're asking of ourselves is to connect with the human condition and to, to be kind to ourselves and yeah. empower ourselves to live a life that's worth living. And when you have that thought of I'm no one, you know, that, okay, you're no one, but you're everyone. You, you are in the situation that humans are in. And if you know anyone really, really well in the backstory, they have some share in your story as you do in them. We're, we're very, very alike. Uh, and the form will change, but the, but, the, but the challenge of it. And the reason why those movies and novels and so forth are so important is that we all relate to it. We all see it. Somehow or another, we see ourselves reflected. And I think that's real. It, it's the hero's journey of a life well lived. And wouldn't it be awesome if everyone uh, took as part of their authority to uh, authentically write your story in a way that reflected your best effort to be that hero? I where that next chapter you write is part of your success as a human being. It doesn't mean your success as a millionaire, your success as beginning famous. It doesn't mean all these kind of, no, your success as a human being and what you've been asked to do in life, which is to learn how to be human. I love that. That's so beautiful. I find, you know, the, the stories of our clients and the, the, those who are sometimes passed over. I mean, the person who's working for you as a janitor or the person who's helping paint your house, or if you can connect into this space, you'll see that you have heroes all around you who uh, are giving the lie to this world can't be better and my life can't be changed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And that's another part of the flexibility to be able to be aware of what's going on and to have be able to kind of slide into the different context to be able to see that and to see the connection that we have with each other at all moments and where we all are in our journeys together learning to be more human it's a little scary <clears throat> because we sort of say well, who am i you know uh, i forgot the person who actually wrote it but the one that was uh, quoted in nelson mandela's uh, inaugural address you know where or who who are you not mm -hmm. to allow your light to be seen and playing it small doesn't serve humanity so mm -hmm. But playing it big doesn't mean me, me, me. Playing it big might mean 
you know, finding that place to really step forward. You had asked me to talk about parents and so forth. I think, especially given that there's probably some of these family things that are even genetic, you know, I mean, it's part of the, the case. If you're dealing with, let's say, children who are struggling with OCD, you may have some parallel things in your family history and maybe you, you too. And, you know, who am I flips over into who am I not? I mean, who am I not to be the one who does uh, healthy things with hard choices? And, you know, your children learn by seeing. They don't learn by being told. Uh, when I was little, I was told, uh, you know, just do as I say, don't do as I do. And boy, did I think that was empty at the time. And boy, do I think <laughs> now that it's empty. That is not how we learn we learn by watching mm -hmm. and so that can be a little scary but one of the things i say to parents uh, on this is uh if you work on your own flexibility skills if you allow some of your insides to be your outsides if you allow your children in and they can see some of this are you empowering them as to what to do when things are hard for them, I'd say, yes. Would you say yes? They usually say yes. I say, well, that's a pretty cool thing for a parent to do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Parents oftentimes kind of pretend. They feel as though if any of their vulnerabilities or flaws or difficulties or struggles are seen, they're going to bring down their kids. It's the exact opposite. You'll be able to give them tools that they can use when they hit that same space, and they will. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've noticed that with my son. Um, yeah, I hear. I can when he's behaving in a way. It's you can go upstream into you know. I can go upstream into my own past and hear the adults' commentary from when it happened to me. Very critical, very judgmental, and it's like in that moment a parent has a choice to either regurgitate that to try to save the child from that behavior by shaming it out of them or to stop, pause, and just be there without judgment for the behavior. And I find that when when I don't give meaning to my... Well, I mean, there's a million different scenarios, but in general, I find that acceptance using that acceptance um it doesn't add energy to that wiring yeah i agree and if you pull aside the veil a little bit so that your children can see you uh they can learn from that especially as they as they get older and move forward you can do things like you know well i'm having some thoughts right now that are like this and like this and they're just thoughts. I mean, I know that some of the history, I've even told you some of those stories, but uh, really what I want to say is, and then say what you have to say to your kids. So you let them in a little bit. You let them see that uh, you don't always have immediately have the answers, that you have uncertainties and doubts, and that you have a history that if you bought into it could easily pull you in the wrong direction make it harder for you to be there for your kids in ways that would really serve their interests and they can see the process they can see that process of awareness of acceptance 
of non-judgment, of letting go of judgment, of coming into the present moment, focusing on what's important, and landing in your actual life choices there, as opposed, you know, essentially landing in love rather than fear. I love that. I love that. That's you're giving them a skill. You're 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 kind of you're giving them a roadmap, a cognitive map that is not judgmental, that is not unrealistic, that they can use and will use. Um, there are some studies with uh, what happens when a horrible thing happens, like a shooting at school or, or a, a tornado comes through town and people die or, uh, you know, what happens with tragedies. And watching what predicts the development of PTSD or anxiety disorders, including OCD, by the way, uh, in children after these horrific things happen. The single biggest predictor, the psychological flexibility of the parents. Mm. You want to help your kids? Start with yourself. That's and powerful. Then, and then let them in. Let them be on this life journey with you. Not out of arrogance and pride, but out of uh, compassion and connection. Let them be in a relationship with you that's honest. Don't dump on them. Don't ask them to solve your problems. You're the adult. <laughs> but part of that adult role is to, you know, kind of educate your children psychologically. Because a lot of the things that work psychologically are not necessarily logical. Like, who would think that opening up to pain is a healthy way to deal with pain? Logically, it seems like you should get rid of it, period, end of story. Yeah, but that's maybe logical, but it's not psychological because there's no delete button in your nervous system. There's no healthy way to get rid of your past memories that are painful. Yeah. A short brain injury, it's going to be there with you for the rest of your life. So, yeah, we it's... We, Life is asking us to do something. And I think our kids are now focused or are being asked because of the media, because of how fast they grow up, because of COVID, because of, um, you know, the inter internet and so forth, are being asked to be little baby Buddhas at age eight. <laughs> That's so true. It is. And well, we better help them be that. Yes. And, and to find the languaging that they hear, that they can hear best. Like, that's something interesting I discovered about my son. He doesn't like intellectual conversations. But if I can find a way to use a metaphor and make him laugh, suddenly he gets it. Like, we were talking about, you know, how far you can push something. And so you can tell a joke about the hairdresser who had the impulse to shave someone's head and their eyebrows because they just could. <laughs> you know, something like that. And then we, we can make each other laugh into scenarios about it, about how... Oop, are you still there? Yeah, okay, I am. Sorry, I got a message on my phone. Just ways to to lighten up the subject matter and tell a story about it. And then of course she develops self leadership. And of course that's not what she stands for and she'd lose all her business and stuff. But the point is, is that I found a language my son can hear where I can come out of myself and he can come out of his, his self 
and connect and I guess you'd call it like kind of like a hero's journey how can we make sense of our impulses and things like that but <laughs> you know that's an awesome uh, example and I, I'll uh, happily steal it <laughs> well I'm honored <laughs> with a really good example and I do think with children especially we learn through stories and images like that and that's uh, and if you have a deep personal, I think this is one reason why the psychological flexibility of the parent is so important because you are able to sort of communicate what's deeply so in a way that, you know, the people can, that your children can use. So, yes. So you wouldn't be able to come up with that metaphor unless you had a deep understanding of it. Yes. And I don't mean like an intellectual understanding, but a gut level understanding, a connection to it. Yeah. And actually one thing about that is that if if a you know somebody's listening to us and saying, Well, I don't know about my own psychological flexibility, and oh my god, am I gonna be hurting my kids and just it tempted to actually go in that obsessive spin around even something like that. No the examples we're talking about are coping examples. They're not mastery examples. When I, uh, my wife and I went and the winter Olympics are coming up and we, uh, I'm thinking about the Olympics a lot. A lot. I, I only went to one in Rio and because my wife's Brazilian, we went down and really just had a ball there, but watching some of these athletes do these amazing life threatening things. Like we saw an event I didn't even know existed called, uh, what was it called? Something like gym, gymnastics trampoline or something wow. where they, they hit the trampoline and then when they go up, they do all these double twisting, back flipping, you know, they land on their head. They might break their neck and not ever walk again, but they're, they don't land on their head. They've been practicing a gazillion number of hours. When you see something like that, you know, you don't have a thoughts that say something like, Hey, I want to have a try. <laughs> you know, it looks like you say, this must be an alien being from another planet. <laughs> Nobody could actually do that. <laughs> and firstly, if you're like the OCD mom who's sort of, you know, getting centered and doing okay, and you've got an OCD kid, as an example, you know, that kind of thing, you've got your own anxiety struggles, etc. You know, you're able to be the coping model that actually does change behavior. You know, this is hard for me too sometimes, and here's what I've found is helpful. So you don't have to be practically perfect in every way. You're not being nominated <laughs> Harry Poppins of parenthood. <laughs> You're being asked to be your whole self and to take those thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations that make life moments challenging and step up to that challenge in a way that allows you to flip them over and see what that suggests you care about and what you can do in a values-based journey. So it, uh, there's kind of a Zen of parenting. I think that's being asked of us when we're raising uh, kids who are also having some mental health struggles. And so beautiful what you said, because when we show our kids that we're not practically perfect and that we do have stuff going on, I mean, what better way to bridge 
the concept of acceptance and in creative acceptance and then learning what you were saying about about where's the strength in there and then turning those into the values to then turn those into the new habits that's the game and you know there's a substantial number of folks trying to follow that journey the act people certainly are but there's others and mindfulness based uh, folks of all kinds and uh, so you know finding those communities will help lift you up teach you support you in that journey is uh, you know something that uh, is available to us now in the modern world and you're not alone yes Although I wish there were more support structures. I feel like our society, maybe it's just where I, what I've seen. I mean, especially I'm a bit jaded because my mother was in mental health facilities across the country. And I, uh, I didn't see the best of the best in terms of support because everyone's overworked and exhausted and all that. But I, I, I feel like things are beginning to be less emaciated in terms of people who are are committed to the kinds of things you're committed to and are willing to go behind the scenes with people instead of just make sure they're alive and medicated. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, we have a long way to go, but um, <laughs> you know, the folks who are trying to follow the act journey, I one thing I can suggest is a group called act for the public. It's at the uh, groups.io mm. and uh, it's free join it it's got two three thousand people on that list uh i read every post i respond pretty frequently and a number of other act people do as well uh uh, meaning uh, professionals who are really experts there but the real experts on that list are people and i've watched them now it's that list has been going for 13 years and i've watched some people who came in just so out of control and out of, unable to, you know, put one foot in front of the other and, and really who now are like world resources, you know, wow. they have so much wisdom and it came from their suffering, but also from their commitment to uh, acquiring skills that are useful and yeah, guided by science and experts and all that, but not in a, an arrogant way where constantly developing new things and a lot of them come out of just normal folks figuring stuff out and then being tested scientifically but so there's resources like that i will mention that one too act for the public at groups.io i'm excited about if you decide to do it lurk for a little while just watch it get the culture and then come on in pitch and it doesn't kick off a huge number of probably a, you know, an email or two every day or two. But uh, when it's there, you can say almost any, ask almost anything about, uh, well, these different self-help books that are out there kind of in the third wave CBT or ACT space, such as uh, Get Out of Mind in Your Life, A Liberated Mind, um, uh, the reality slap, the happiness trap, the stuff Russ Harris has written, etc. Mm-hmm. That's that sounds like a wonderful space. I'm glad you shared it. Thank you. Well, lots and lots of good things to think about. 
Um, trying to think if there's any last thing we, we should talk about before we end our conversation. Um, I guess if you have time for one more question. Yeah. Um, I like to talk about all this stuff we've been talking about. It's, it's really powerful stuff. And, and I'm also wondering if, I don't even know if you'd be able to do this, but what, what happens in a moment to moment space when let's say a parent is in the room and their child is doing something that the parent thinks is not normal. Like in that very specific moment, is there some sort of um, step one, two, and three that the parent can do to pause, realign with those values if they've established those values from doing some work and to then respond in a way that's supportive to their kid instead of making a, a, a panicked, a catastrophic uh, reaction. Yeah, I think if you have a habit of applying these processes to your own behavior, like in that moment, there's an emotional rush that's difficult. There's certain kind of judgments of your child and maybe of yourself that show up. There's certain behavioral urges that show up, you know, like uh, you might just want to say stop or something, and yet you have a sense that may not be the best thing to do. Um, you make almost lose your connection, your conscious connection to the whole human being called your children and the whole human being that you are. So I would say, you know, start this with yourself and these flexibility skills of noticing your thoughts, noticing your feelings and memories, showing up in this present moment consciously. And then in in that second, and it's something that when you're well-practiced, you can do in less than a second. It's kind of like a swoop through. It's like opening the, the mental windows, you know, and allowing some air in. You can put your attention on what's of importance here, values in a values-based way, uh, just as feelings, images, so forth, you may not even have time to think them out in words. It's not like, oh, I want to be a loving parent. I mean, you could do that, but uh, something um, often the, the values expression is more like a felt sense of stepping forward or instead of back or, and, and allowing your mind to then ally on a, a behavioral response and, and allowing it to be quite creative and flexible and different. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may, who knows what the thing might be. I mean, in that very moment, what would happen if you uh, started singing? What would happen if you uh, went over and put your hand on your child? What would happen if you uh, invited them to a walk? What would happen? I mean, I don't know what the options are here, but you can almost always sense that there's some options that are easy behavioral options that you know from the felt sense in your gut are not going to give you leverage. Mm -hmm. Like uh, you might feel the urge to criticize and judge. And you also might feel maybe, maybe not. Look at your own experience. Don't let a, an old bald guy dictate to you. <laughs> I'm not living your life. 
But you may sense that we're going to give voice to that. There's no life in it. There's no leverage in it. There's nothing new in it. I'm just pouring gasoline on this fire. I'm not going to shame my kid into psychological health. I'm not going to judge my kid into being able to step back and look at their situation in a different way. So start with yourself, that'd be, I'd say. And then the next one is, if you are dealing with a child who really needs to acquire these kind of flexibility skills in order to step up to some real challenges, you know, be guided by the course that you've decided to take. Do something that's planful. Often working with a professional. It might be with self-help books and stuff. Turns out our self-help books do about two-thirds of what a professional can do if you have enough support to be able to understand them and use them and practice them, which is a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, and some of those things you can get for, you know, the cost of a of a coffee, one one or two. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, lattes will pay for the books, etc. So, don't be thinking and saying that you you know you don't have anything that would. No, you've got resources around you. And if you're working with a professional, then you may have decided, what do I do if this happens? What do I do if this happens? And so forth. And you can, if not, you can con maybe consult. Like we mentioned the groups.io. You know, people will give you great ideas. You know, my son tends to do this. What should I do? And they have thought it out enough that, and practiced it and that you have some ways of moving forward that resonate and feel uh, one of the things we do know, if you could just kind of look at your responses, is that if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you've been getting. And if you don't like what's happening in your parenting, you're going to have to change your parenting if you don't like the results. Mm -hmm. And so the way the mind works, it's going to tell you to do more of the same. And it's yes. going to give you a hundred reasons why you that's right, correct, and you shouldn't have to change. Thank your mind for all that judgment. We want <laughs> to have skill sometimes, like when you're doing your taxes, but respectfully decline its invitation to do more of the same. That's not what you're needed here. So almost anything, if it's reasonable, healthy, and different, if you keep your eyes wide and watch how it lands, you'll learn from it. Mm -hmm. So you're not stuck. If you ever have a sense you're stuck, you're, you need work on your own personal flexibility. Absolutely. Many, many different things you can do that would maintain, for example, a loving stance with your child or a respectful stance with your child or not stomping on their independence or the values that you want to protect. Yeah. Um, I think uh, one of the things I, if I can tell a personal story, I've told it several times, but you know, I mentioned I had children across a wide age range, and my wife and I, when we were courting, she said she didn't want to have children, which I secretly said, well, that's good, because I'm so darn old. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my kid just got a driver's license. I'm 73. You know, this is up there. But um, uh, late in our dating, she, my wife says, uh, I actually want children. I see you with your children. And I go, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I went out for a long walk. 
came back, looked her in the eye and said, love, let's do it. <laughs> I said, but I just have one thing to say. You will never feel so vulnerable as you're about to feel and it will never go away. Yes. You know, so uh, we were on, we went on a walk uh, a few days ago and uh, she's heard me tell that story, but she was talking about my son and our son and his progress. And I've written blogs about this. You know, he had a diagnosable muscle disorder, was told that he would never even be able to hardly cut his own food. You know, and he got just finished getting his black belt uh, 10 years later. Wow. And uh, boy, did, you know, did I find out that these top-down categories are such lies about human development. I mean, you don't know what the potential is for your kids, yeah. you know, and it's way probably beyond what your mind would give you. But she was saying, uh, just reflecting on the vulnerability she feels with Stevie now driving and how much she loves this little guy. Aww. Even though he's not a little guy, he's taller than I am and is stronger <laughs> than I am, can lift weights more than I can. So, and, and I reminded her of that story and it's turned out to be true, you know. My uh, my 52-year-old had a break, break, breakthrough COVID right now. And uh, this morning, you know, my thoughts were... You know, is she going to be all right? She's in day four of the infection. And she sent me an email right before I got on here saying the fever is breaking. I'm actually feeling pretty good. Oh, good. You know, so the point of that story is that you had asked me to focus on parents. And the challenge of being a parent with a child who is struggling is the challenge of being a parent period and end of story because the vulnerability that we open up ourselves to when knowing full well that children you know can have bad things happen they can die they can get into drugs they can have a car accident they can get covid etc asks of us some of them most sophisticated, hardest, most loving and wonderful things that a human being can do, which is to take that vulnerability and transform it into a values and being the kind of parent that you want to be. So um, it's a worthy hero's journey, isn't it? It sure is. And I love everything you're saying. It's, it's such powerful stuff. And it reminds me a lot about the word trust, you know, with values and vulnerability and trusting oneself to be an anchor for oneself and for one's child. Yeah, I think it's a good way to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, let I will say one thing to the group uh, before I leave. Uh, if you want to follow my work, I, there, I do a website, Stephen C. Hayes, Stephen with a V, middle initial C, like in Charlie, my dad's name, and my son's uh, first son's name. 
uh hayes h-a-y-e-s all one word no periods uh if you click on yes please send it to me i'll send you a clinical newsletter i don't spam people if you ever don't like it it's one click opt out and um between that and uh, act for the public i try to you know in my blogs and my newsletters and all of that try to be useful to people so if you found something useful here uh, you can access it over time and just been connected to me in that way and uh you know i always when i'm asked to sign books or whatever i i say uh, you know i hope this makes a difference in your life and the lives of those you serve and i hope uh, that's what i've done here today oh this has been such a wonderful conversation i i'm very grateful for your time and and your ideas and your thoughts and your commitments thank you so much Stephen. thank you for the opportunity and to everybody peace love and life have a good evening you too bye-bye you've been listening to once upon an upset this week's episode was written produced and edited by me Jessica Laurel Kane, and the music was made by Jerome Rawson at Fresh Made Music. For illustrations, merchandise, and more, please visit onceuponanupset.com. And don't forget to subscribe. See you next week. <laughs>